morning, as I read from God's Word, Revelation chapter 16, I will read verses 17 through 21 of Revelation chapter 16. You can follow along with me or listen as I read from God's Word. Revelation chapter 16, beginning in verse 17, we look at the seventh bowl of God's wrath against Jerusalem. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake, as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's word. Lord, our desire this morning is that we might not remain in only confusion in the mystery of your word, that you might, by your Spirit, give us wisdom and understanding. Lord, even as we have prayed for the forgiveness of our sins, we pray also for the maintenance and the sanctification of our souls, that we would not come to your sanctuary this morning and be unmoved, but as a dying man to dying men, that I might preach with boldness and clarity, Lord, teach us to number our days and to know that there is nothing worth living for like the one and for the one who has saved our lives from the pit. And so may we as one people, even as we have raised our voices as one people, and bowed our heads and our hearts as one people. May we be all together committed to the cause of our heavenly King. Make us such a people then devoted to this great eternal quest, this crusade of taking dominion over all the earth under the banner, the banner of Christ our King. For it is in your name, O Christ, we pray these things. Amen. We come to the final, the finish, or as that great messenger of heaven called it, it is done. It is the fullness and completion of God's judgment against Jerusalem. He is clearing house. 
And even as Christ turned over tables in his earthly ministry, and he said to those at the time who did not understand what he was doing, tear down this house and in three days I will raise it up again. And then there's that little aside, that exposition. He was talking about himself, his body. Christ is no longer a suffering Messiah. He is a risen Ascended, transcendent yet imminent, that means he's nearby, but in his office as high priest and king, he no longer hangs upon a cross as some would say, but even now he sits upon the throne of heaven and earth, even as the one who has finished that work of suffering, he now rules as king. And as king, he brings wrath and vengeance against those who rejected his offer of salvation. Who rather than embracing Christ, the true king, chose to exalt the beast. Rome itself. And many among whom, even the Jewish teachers in his own day, cried out, We worship, in essence, we support Caesar, not the Christ. And so in this final bowl, this final element of Christ's wrath poured out upon Jerusalem, we find plagues that are more closely identified with Egypt than with the chosen people of God, and there is reason for that. Israel, as we have heard already in this series has become like Egypt and even worse, for they understood the weight and the nature of their own betrayal. For they had the law, they had the prophets, they had Moses and the kings. And despite all of this, declarations of covenant affection, they rejected Christ the Messiah. And so it is here, With these plagues, the dissolving of God's covenant favor upon one nation and given to another one altogether. Three points that I want to make this morning is the covenant blessings are dissolved in relationship to Israel, the great city, Jerusalem, and of course, seen in the destruction of the temple. Three points, the dissolving of covenant blessing, second The judgments of Christ poured out. And then third, a question to us. How shall you respond? How shall you respond? Let's take up this morning the first point. The dissolving of covenant blessing. Now, it is easy for us, for we are a very forgetful people. And we are a people who do not understand love and justice and fairness like a God who is infinitely eternal in his goodness, his righteousness, his justice. Why Israel is being judged in the first place? They have, no, not all of them, there were exceptions. Even in the days of the prophets, there were exceptions that had not bowed the knee to Baal. But by and large, the nation as represented especially by their religious leaders, the Sanhedrin and others, who called for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, were being judged. And there is clear reason why. 
Now those reasons are stated in the Old Testament. First, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses warns the Israelites prior to his death that depending upon the way in which they relate to God and his word, if they obey, they receive blessing, but if they disobey, they receive cursing. It's that simple. Now, to receive the Messiah is an act of faithful covenant obedience. And in fact, this was the reason for which Abram, who would become Abraham, was counted righteous. Not because of deeds done in the flesh, but because he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, how does that actually happen? Do you know the nature of that transaction? How is it that I can simply say, I trust Christ alone? I believe in the promise of God. Not only because God set it up that way and he gets to define the terms, but because there is nothing that you and I can do in human flesh to merit the favor of God. There is no way that you and I can get back into the garden through human effort. That way is closed. It is shut to us. And though, legally speaking, Paul makes that argument, it is possible to keep covenant for those who are truly innocent. Not a man, woman, or child here is truly innocent. For in sin was I conceived. Now, that does not mean that the act of conception itself was sinful, but you and I, by right of natural generation, that means, kids, it's because of your parents you're sinful. Now, before you blame them, they can say the same of their parents. All the way back to Adam, we can say, gee, thanks. Thank you, Adam, for ruining it for all of us. But God, in his forbearance, in his patience, came to Adam and to his wife, and he said, I will not leave you in your sin, but I will send a promised seed, a Messiah, Christ, and he will crush the head of Satan, and he will quiet the wrath of God against our sins. And throughout the Old Testament, what God is essentially doing is he is laying down the puzzle pieces, weaving the tapestry of what the Messiah will look like and what he will do in order to restore us to God. And when Christ shows up on scene, those who were waiting for salvation looked at him and said, no, no. Now, what is left for those who reject salvation? Time and time and time again. Judgment. A special kind of judgment. In fact, a kind of judgment that had never been seen before until this time, we read in Revelation chapter 16. It was the judgment of God closing off Israel as a nation to his covenant blessings. And despite all of the warnings, all of the pleadings of the prophets and Christ himself, John the Baptist who immediately preceded him, 
Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In fact, we learn something, right? In light of our sins and rebellion, there is but one faithful response. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. There's the theme for the whole communicants class. Children, you were born a sinner. You must repent. All right, well, I think that's good enough, right? We flesh that out. We need to understand what that means. But any response that is not repentance out of godly sorrow for sin must be by definition one of hard-hearted rejection for the Israelite, for they have heard. Parents, you know the difference between a child who does something they should not have done, not knowing, still sin, still wrong, but they did not know. I get it. You don't get to say yeah every time, though. Right? Sometimes, and most of the time, you do know. And that's when you look at your parents, and they are either dealing with the righteous anger that grows in their hearts because of your sin, or the the broken-heartedness of them, and you can see it in their faces because you've had this conversation before. You've been around this bin many times. What are you doing? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Yes, Israel has heard. And for their idolatry, Their covenantal adultery, they had been warned time and time and time again. And so here in Revelation 16, at the end of these judgments, the angel says, it is done. Which is a statement that is not unlike Christ upon the cross when he says, it is finished. A finished judgment upon Israel connected to a completed judgment upon Christ. And yet, if you do not rest in the fulfillment of Christ's death for your sins, you are left alone in them like the thief on the other side who rejected Christ. It's done. It's over. No more chances And in response, Israel did not say, please forgive. But look at the end of this chapter. Despite clear, clear covenantal judgments, they blasphemed God because of the plagues. Who else did this? Well, if you have a chance, parents, maybe you can work through these little texts with your children, as you move through the early part of the book of Exodus, Moses goes to Egypt and he talks to Pharaoh and he, through the power of God, displays plagues, clear acts of God's anger and vengeance and wrath and power against not only Egypt, but Pharaoh and their fake gods. And every time a plague comes in Exodus 7, chapter 12, and uh, chapter 7, verse 12, And verse 23, chapter 8, verse 15, verse 19 and 32, chapter 9, verse 7, 12 and 35, and then chapter 10, verses 20 and 27. Every time we read a refrain, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, or God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
He saw the same things the Israelites saw. And Israel looked at him and went, yes, God is on our, God is doing this great thing. And Pharaoh saw them and was blind to the nature of them. Hardened to them. He could not see. Because he had not yet been given sight. Who was never given sight. He was under the condemnation of God. And such has become Israel. That's a scary place to be. To be able to see the glorious and mighty acts of God and to be unmoved towards repentance. In fact, be moved in the other direction towards blasphemy. This is what Israel had become. And so my first exhortation to you this morning, saints, is um, not only to... Not concern yourself with the direct connection between judgment and sin, but to know that all judgment of God, however it comes, whatever form it is, whenever you see the wrath of God beheld clearly in his providence to say, what's my part in repentance here? How should I repent? What am I to do? One of the unmistakable elements of God's judgment on the church in the world, and especially in the West, is by getting exactly what we asked for when we were told by those who compete with authority for the church, don't meet anymore. And we said, many of us, okay. Why? Because we did not value or long for the house of God. And when I say we, I mean the collective church, of which we cannot escape some form of connection and membership. But rather, in light of God's judgments and displeasure, go, Lord, what must I do? Or as Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. Because the end of disobedience is the dissolving of covenant blessing. No more chances. And so in light of God's judgment upon Israel... We see these judgments poured out here. It came with the statement, it is done. And then in verse 18, there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. There was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now, what is happening there? Well, in Haggai, that's right, you need to know your Old Testament to understand the new, especially fulfillment of prophecies. In Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. That's Christ. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. But which temple? Not the temple in Jerusalem. The silver is mine. And the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, which is the temple in Jerusalem, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Now, in order for there to be a latter temple to which we all flock, which is what? It is Christ. And in him we together as the church fellowship and in him we live and move and have our being in order for the church to be conformed and well to be conformed and to be confirmed that christ is the temple 
What must happen to that singular place that stands in Jerusalem? It must be wiped out. This is the earthquake that was unlike any earthquake that has not occurred since men were on the earth. And so it wasn't the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians or by the Romans in the first place or in the second. But it is here when the great temple of Jerusalem is destroyed in AD 70 that the covenantal framework of all things is shaken to its core. And God says, with the destruction of this temple, the erection of the new temple, the latter temple, the latter temple at which sits the desire of all nations. So when you and I go into the world and we say, come and welcome to the house of God, we don't then give them flying directions or driving directions to Jerusalem. Oh, by the way, make your pilgrimage. No, we say what? Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. And so what God is doing by shaking the stuff of earth is he is purifying for himself a people who gather in the name of Christ. And so in the book of Hebrews... Paul, most likely the author of Hebrews, says in chapter 12, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape, who refused him, that is Jesus, who spoke on earth much more, shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? Which is what he's doing now by his spirit. Whose voice then shook the earth, But now he has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. As of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. What is to be shaken, to be cast off? Think wheat and tares, sheep and goats, elect and reprobate. Who will be blown away like the chaff? Those who do not enter into the presence of God through Christ Jesus. That's how you are established as those whose lives are built upon the rock. Is that clear? Christ is the one to whom we come for salvation. And so God is, in his time, making it very clear to our very eyes in history, don't come to this house There's no house to come to. The house that once stood in Jerusalem is gone. And you know what? That's good. It's good. Because we come anywhere at any time to Christ, who is our great high priest. And so when we read of the shaking of the heavens and the earth, it is not only, perhaps, expressed in that time by the destruction of Rome against Israel, But it is couched and described in covenantal terms. God is doing something that is very evident that it is his doing. I am coming against Israel. Though it may be a foreign nation, it is I, like it was Babylon and Assyria and Persia. I am coming again because of your rebellion. And not only the shaking of the heavens and the earth, but the dividing and the conquering 
of Israel. And so we look at verse 19. I'm losing my voice, I'm sorry. Stay with me. Now the great city, Jerusalem, was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And a great hail was from heaven, fell upon men, each hailstone weighing about a talent. And then we'll stop there. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, Ezekiel prophesies concerning the coming of Babylon that in 586, this pagan nation would come into Israel, the southern kingdom, Jerusalem, and they would, as a means of God judging a rebellious nation, divide the city in three. And in 586, a third of the inhabitants of Jerusalem were burned inside the city, a third were slain by Babylonian swords, and a third were scattered in exile. Now, if you want to be a prophet and have a good reputation among God and men, the things you say have to come true. And the reason these things came true, because they were not the musings of a mere man, but they were in fact God's word. Ezekiel was warning Israel, excuse me, to repent because judgment was coming. Is this not a blessing? Think about this. Each of us knows that there is eternal judgment waiting us if we deny Christ. That is all the warning you need to get your life together, to come to Christ and to repent of your sins and find salvation in him. And if you're like me, you've heard this a lot. I grew up hearing it. Some of you did not. Many of you may not have. But I've heard it a lot. And for every young Israelite, they heard these things. The scroll would be opened and they would read from the law and the prophets and the wisdom books. And they all resounded with one singular theme. That the judgments of God that are felt on earth, that you can feel and smell and taste and touch with your senses, are in fact covenantal judgments that are meant to correct the conduct of your soul. And to bring you to a place of repentance. And it takes an awfully hard heart. And a blind eye. And a weak and dim mind. To look at all of what God has done and say. Oh, that's no big deal. I'm going to be okay. I'll go the way of this idol. I will give my soul to another. But now, as I have said already, God would bring judgment. Now, the way that God reveals his judgment throughout history is the giving over of a people who are once united for a purpose to chaos and division. When Adam sinned, what did he say of his wife in contrast to what he first said of her, right? In the first place, when he saw the woman, the man said, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. A statement of one flesh union. Yet when Adam and his wife sinned, what did he say? Lord, the woman you gave me, 
He was done with her, right? Why? Because his sin had corrupted his heart to the point that he blamed her for his sin. What happened with their children, their first two sons? When Cain was confronted with his sin because of Abel's righteousness, what did Cain do? He didn't just say in it to himself, Lord, this guy's making me look bad. He took a rock or a staff and he struck him. He killed him. To do what? To silence the righteous declaration that we must come only through the blood of a sacrifice and not of our own merit. He was a violent adulterer. And then we go to Babel, a city of Cain's. And there in Babel, what do we see? Man sought to establish glory for themselves, contradictory to the plan of God for salvation. And God came down among them and he scattered them and confused them and brought division and disunity. Do you know why churches most often fail? It is because not only we reject orthodoxy, but we end up failing because we are divided due to immorality. That is often grounded upon unorthodoxy, but because of this biting chatter that can happen behind the scenes. Don't do it. It's the evidence of what? It's the evidence of a blasphemous heart. Israel could not stand because they had moved themselves covenantally off the foundation that was Christ and onto the security that Rome provided. There is no security for us. There is no security for men. If we wish not to be shaken when the judgments of God come, we must be what? Firmly fixed to the rock that is Christ Jesus. And know this, God shakes things. It's what he does. It is a means of purifying the church. It is what he did with Noah. It is what he did in the days of Elijah. And it is what he does even in our own day. And oftentimes we say, God doesn't work this way anymore. I don't see it. It's because you're blind if you do not see it. Ask God to give you eyes to see it. Because God will, in time, through his Son, the Messiah, shake the things of earth so that that which is not to be shaken or cannot be shaken might endure. And so that leads us then to the question, how will we respond? Will we look at the wrath of God and go, well, that's just not fair. I don't like that. God, I hate you. I hate you for what you've done. And oftentimes in apologetics, that is the great, I've got them. I have the Christian. You know what I'm going to say? How can a good God let bad things happen to people? And what do you say? Show me one good man. Show me one. Show me one man who has not committed lust in his heart or gotten angry. Take him through the Ten Commandments. And you say, you tell me who is good. The fact is this. There is but one cup that Adam has qualified us to drink. And it is the cup of the fierceness of the wrath of God. 
That is the only cup you and I are worthy to drink from unless God exchanges that cup for a cup of his covenant blessing. And the only way that cup might be exchanged is because Christ drank of the cup of the fierceness of the wrath of his father. Why does Christ say, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me? Is because he knew what was in that cup. It was the covenant cursings of God. Now you know if you've been listening and you understand. Now you know this is what remains for those who do not drink of the cup of covenant fellowship with God. And how do you do that? What must you say? What must you believe? What does Paul say? If you confess with your mouth, if you believe in your heart, you shall be saved. Well, what must I do? Stop. You must drink of the cup of Christ's covenant fellowship. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Abraham was a sinner. He was an adulterer. He was impatient for the fulfillment of the promises of God. And yet, he, like so many, like Rahab, like Moses, a murderer, David, an adulterer, and then a murderer, they did not have to drink of the cupness, of the fierceness of the wrath of God. Why? Because their hope was in Christ. It is not sinlessness that saves us of our own accord. It is the sinlessness of Christ. What must we say and do? You must confess Christ. You must believe upon him. For even now these cups are presented to us. Right? What does the world want you to do? They want you to drink of the wrath of God, but it isn't presented that way, is it? It's a shiny bright and bejeweled cup and it has all of these pleasures that are sort of emboldened and engraved on the outside power wealth pleasure and those things are not bad but they are not the end of our lives they will not save us And so what do we do? What does the scripture say? We often going from cistern to cistern, cup to cup, that cannot hold water. When we are called to do what? To seek the cup of covenant fellowship. To not respond as these Israelites responded. I cannot believe, God, you are doing this to us. How dare you? Blasphemes come in different ways, don't they? Shaking of the fist, an apathetic heart, misunderstanding. And when there is coming into your face, you see, the Romans had big catapults. And these catapults could launch 100-pound stones, a talent's worth, you might say. And even as the Israelites saw these stones coming into the city, they weren't going, God, please save us. They were cursing his name. It is really only the spirit that can prompt us to such a God-honoring response. And so seek communion in Christ. 
Approach him as the lamb that takes away your sins. And so there's all this drama, there's all these signs, there's all these symbols that are contained in this very strange book. But it all boils down to this. Receive Christ as the king. Receive him as your king. Confess him as the redeemer of your sins. Trust him, love him, serve him, hold fast to him. And you will have the confidence that you are secure in him. You will not be shaken. So long as we cling to Christ. Terror in one hand. Glory and peace in the other. Two hands that belong to our one king. And he brings both upon the earth. Will you seek salvation in him? Let's pray. Lord.